Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're in the short yet significant New Testament letter of 1 John. John was writing near the end of the first century to many Christians who were either giving up or being tempted to give up on some of the basics of Christian faith. He responds to this by calling them back to correct doctrine, obedient living, and lively devotion. At its heart, this book is calling us to find our life in the life of the beloved, Jesus. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless. Our Father in heaven, uh, we come before you and uh, we long to uh, be children that sit at your feet um, like the disciples did long ago with our Lord and who are taught by you. And so Lord, even as uh, today we again turn to this lovely little epistle of First John, we pray that you would teach us, Lord, that you would um, meet us where we are this week. We know some of us have heavy hearts and have gone through a lot this week and Yet we've come here and we long for you to teach and to instruct us in your ways. God, I pray that uh, having read this passage and having some time to reflect upon it, that we would take great joy in this idea that, that we belong to you, that we are your children, your sons and your daughters through the work of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> um, one of the Really lovely things about Harrisburg, one of the things that I often tell people that I love about Harrisburg is that you can live in a walkable neighborhood like our own right here in Midtown, um, but you can easily be out in the woods, like really pretty quickly, uh, or you can be out in a far- at a farm really quickly. Um, some of you know that you can be on the Appalachian Trail in about 15 minutes up Peter's Mountain, just this parking lot right there, bam, you're on the trail. Um, you can drive out to Schaefer Retreat next Saturday and Sunday in 15 minutes. I'm telling you, it feels like you're just in the woods, in the middle of nature, and it is so beautiful out there. Um, it's a lovely place. And um, of course, one of the, the things that's so great about this is that there's a proximity to farms too. Um, and one of the great things uh, that you can do, of course, in fall, I'm going to move these because these, I think, do distract from being able to see you. Um, One of the things that you can do in fall is go to a farm, right? And you can go pick pumpkins to your heart's content or fill up bushels of apples. And one of the things that we know is that pumpkins don't grow on apple trees, right? They don't. Pumpkins grow on little vines across on the ground. And one of the things that's really cool when you go to some of these farms like Mount Airy, which I think of as Paulus's, I guess it changed its name, or Strites, is that you can see just the different colors of the apples on the trees themselves. And they're so beautiful or sometimes along the ground, right? And you know that a Cortland apple grows on a Cortland tree, right? And a wine sap on a wine sap and a honey crisp, all these kinds of things. Um, one of the things that is so obvious in the fall is that a certain tree bears certain fruit and that apples never fall far from their trees. Um, when we moved here, Lily was eight, 18 months old. She's not in here. She, she's now almost 10 and she is absolutely one of the apples of my eye. 
She's a delight. Um, some of you will remember, because I said this long ago, and I've heard from a few of you that you remembered it. Um, I actually looked it up. I said this over eight years ago. I was sharing with you that uh, for a while, um, Melise would tell people, if you really want to see what Peter would look like in a dress, just look at Lily. Um, <laughs> Because there was so much family resemblance. Uh, Gordon Zubrod and Elaine are not with us this morning, but when Henry first came to church soon after he was born, and Henry was a very uh, full baby, um, Gordon told me, Peter, no judge is ever going to believe you if you try to deny that that's your child. Um, And we like to say in our family that the Rowan genes are strong. Um, And the sad thing is that they're strong for good and for ill. Um, Maybe you've heard this, but people that spend a lot of time looking at one another often actually come to resemble one another. That's one of the reasons why uh, long into a marriage, oftentimes couples will have certain facial expressions that are similar to one another and, and phrases that are the same and Good friends often actually resemble one another's gestures. Um, Melise pointed that out to me this summer when we saw a good friend of ours. She said, man, y'all just talk the same sometimes. Um, it's also why occasionally if you're ever into a conversation with an Australian, there's a point where it gets really awkward, you know, where you're like, hi, good day, mate. And they're like looking at you like, what did you just say? I'm like, I don't know. I'm from America, but let's put a shrimp on the Barbie. And you're like, what is happening to my voice? You've had this happen probably with Brits or something like this. I have. Um, so here's the thing. Not only do my kids resemble me in sort of facial expressions, uh, my genes, so that maybe they're the color of their skin or their hair. But here's what happens is that my kids actually learn how to speak in the world in a certain way. Their tone of voice takes on a certain flair. And their engagement in the world and their engagement with others and with their neighbors and with Holy Scripture and with everything actually be, is sort of instructed and influenced from their parents. Um, I imagine a lot of you are familiar with the author, speaker, professor, Brene Brown. Um, her talk, The Power of Vulnerability, is, I looked it up, it's the fifth most te- watched TED Talk ever with over 60 million views. Uh, she's written a bunch of books that I would commend to your reading. Um, she's written a book on parenting, uh, and it's called The Gift of Imperfect Parenting. She also wrote a parenting manifesto, and I want to read all of it to you. It's not terribly long. She says this. This is her parenting manifesto. Above all else, I want you to know that you are loved and lovable. You will learn this from my words and actions. The lessons on love are in how I treat you and on how I treat myself. I want you to engage with the world from a place of worthiness. You will learn that you are worthy of love, belonging, and joy. Every time you see me practice self-compassion and embrace my own imperfections. We will practice courage in our family by showing up letting ourselves be seen, and honoring vulnerability. We will share our stories of struggle and strength. There will always be room in our home for both. We will teach you compassion by practicing compassion with ourselves first, then with each other. 
We will set and respect boundaries. We will honor hard work, hope, and perseverance. Rest and play will be family values as well as family practices. You will learn accountability and respect by watching me make mistakes and make amends. And by watching how I ask for what I need and talk about how I feel. I want you to know joy, so together we will practice gratitude. I want you to feel joy, so together we will learn how to be vulnerable. When uncertainty and scarcity visit, you will be able to draw from the spirit that is part of our everyday life. Together we will cry and face fear and grief. I will want to take away your pain, but instead I will sit with you and teach you how to feel it. We will laugh and sing and dance and create. We will always have permission to be ourselves with each other. No matter what, you will always belong here. As you begin your wholehearted journey, the greatest gift that I can give to you is to live and love with my whole heart and to dare greatly. I will not teach or love or show you anything perfectly, but I will let you see me. And I will always hold sacred the gift of seeing you, truly deeply seeing you. Beautiful, huh? It really is beautiful. Um, I think the thing that stands out, though, with that, and if you actually engage with some of her thoughts on parenting, this is sort of the consistent idea, is that the apple never falls far from the tree. This doesn't happen. Children become like their parents. And so the theme in there again and again is, I'm going to show you this. I'm going to model this for you. I'm going to show up in a certain way with you. Children become like their parents. Now, I know I have six siblings. Some of y'all know that. And we are all different. And we've all learned a certain way of being in the world from our mother and from our father, from our parents. Um, And this begs a question of you, particularly if you're parents. Let's think about this, okay? Questions like this. Well, do you practice gratitude as a parent? What kind of parent are you? What kind of person are you first? Uh, What tones of voice do you use to speak to others or about others or about yourself? How do you talk about other people? How do you talk about yourself? I mean, her manifesto invited you to ask the question, are you able to sit in pain and grief? And sorrow. As a Christian, do you bring that to the Lord? Have you learned the language of the Psalms that speak of the whole gamut of emotions? A question for parents: Do you do you have you learned the practice of confession? Being honest before the Lord, being honest with your children. You've got to first be honest with yourself. But here's the thing, and this is actually getting more at the passage that's before us. This also begs a question of us, and it's this. Whose child are you? Uh, What family are you living into? What kind of family practices have you put on? 
What kind of family traditions do you have? Habits that have been formed. This is the question, big question of this passage. What father do you resemble? Who are you living with? Whose face have you looked into and started to imitate? Who are you abiding in? To use some of the language of First John. Um, family resemblance is a fact. And John's grabbing onto that. And we all know it in terms of biology and genes and, you know, the, the high probability that at least some of my children may not have hair, that kind of thing. Facts, right, that we all kind of agree on. Brene Brown is saying this same thing is true of your emotional life of your life with your children. Who are you first? Because that's who they're going to become. The best parenting thing is to say, have I done the work personally on myself that I long for my kids to have? Um, But John is saying this is also true spiritually. This is true spiritually. Whose child are you? And this passage, in some ways, makes this question really stark. It gives you two options for a father. What this passage says is, is God your father or is the devil? Now, okay, I know that the, the simplicity of that may seem a little off-putting at times. Just two options? Binary thinkers? Um, but I think it actually presents us with a truth that is really worth kind of sitting in a little bit. Um, and it's also presenting us with a truth that we've got to admit when we start talking about God as father. And that's that sometimes when we talk, the the truth that we have in scripture that God is our father is not terribly appealing or enticing or inviting or lovely to us because um, many of us have known fathers that have not been loving and caring and instructing The fact is, is that many of us have had fatherly experiences that are devil-like. They're devil-like. So um, this passage again and again kind of presents us with this idea of whose father are you? But let me, let's first talk about this idea as the devil is father. Okay. And then we'll turn to God as father. So um, let me read two verses for you. Verse eight and verse 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, They've learned the habits and the way of being in the world. Uh, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 10. By this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, I want to sit in this for a moment. Verse 8 tells us uh, that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. From the beginning. And just like last week, when we kind of looked back at Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, again, I think actually John is sort of inviting us back to think about this idea that is from the beginning. Um, so if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, like we did last week for a moment, 
we can actually think about uh, this idea of a, the, the devil is father. What does the devil do there? Well, the devil practices deceit. Um, what he does is he promotes a lie. And he does that with destructive intent. Maybe you'll remember last week I talked about how a lie and e- lies and evil are always together. There's always darkness with that. And this always promotes uh, the opposite of living. Um, he seeks out death. He really does. He says, you're not going to die. He's lying. And he promotes death. And what happens is that his words always produce hiding. There's always darkness that takes place. There's always a hiding and shame that ends up taking place out of uh, the devil's actions from the beginning. And of course, if you keep going in the first chapters of Genesis, what you find is that out of that existence comes hatred and greater self-deception and greed and killing. Death actually comes in chapter four. One of God's creations, one of God's children kills another. Um, and self-promotion, right? And self-aggrandizement. Think of the Tower of Babel. I want you to think about this. If you can think, if you can picture with me, and some of you unfortunately can because you've lived it, the devil-like father, the horrible parenting that so many people exist within, it's just like that. Parents telling lies after lies. You'll never amount to anything. You're a drain on our energy and on our resources. Words that cut down, that belittle, that demean, that kill. Um, Parents that promote hiding and taking and stealing that which isn't theirs. Parents that hide their hearts from you, but also their goods. Um, Parents that promote death. Of course, all of us can think of horrendous experiences that are far more devil-like. Parents that abuse with their bodies, but also abuse with their words. They kill. They destruct. Parents, they don't practice righteousness. So what I'm suggesting to you is it's not actually that crazy to think about this father that's the devil that works against the goodness of God in the world. Because that's what's been happening from the beginning. And we can tell story after story of that still happening. Living into the world in this sort of way, practicing a certain way of being in the world that is against the law of God, against the righteousness of God. And that kind of way that fights against God always fights against life and light and honesty and goodness. Now, what that's created in so many, in fact, I would say in some level, what it's created in all of us is a deep longing for peace in the midst of chaos, um, honor in the midst of shame, safety in the midst of fear, simply life in the midst of death, uh, love in the midst of hate. What we desire deep down is for the shalom of God, Eden restored, a place where life flourishes again and again and again, and we're hiding in darkness are not the order of the day. And we long for that to be met, of course, in our fathers and our mothers, and we're made for that desire. 
But what the scriptures also tell us is that the only place those desires are met is in our Lord. Um, St. Augustine tells us that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. And so as difficult as it is for so many to contemplate God as their father, I want to suggest to you that it's actually your deepest heart's longing. It's partly why you could read the meditation quote in the beginning of your bulletin from J.I. Packer that says, the greatest doctrine of the Christian life, of Christian theology, is not justification, the fact that you have been made right with God, but adoption. God's brought you into his family. You're a son and a daughter of the Lord. So God is father. Chapter three, verse one, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I've said in this little series that one of the things that John's trying to do to the uh, churches that he's written this general epistle to likely all the churches that he's, he mentions in the beginning of the book of revelation that are on the uh, Western side of modern day Turkey. What he's writing to them is saying, persist in the faith. Don't give up on the basics. Keep going. So he's shown them the beauty of a God who takes on flesh and dwells among them or, um, of a God who deals honestly and really with sin, not living a lie or deceit, but he deals honestly with it and he takes on flesh and conquers it in Jesus. And he cleanses us from our sin because he's dealt with it honestly. And he invites us to deal with it honestly. Um, We've talked about a God who is light and in him, there's no darkness at all. And so the invitation of that is to be children of the light, people of the light instead of darkness. Um, of a truth telling God. And so of course the invitation then is to not be people of a lie and to not promote dishonesty, but to live in truth. And now he's longing for them to abide in the father. Um, you know, everybody has a father. You don't get an option of not having a father. Um, your father might not have ever been around. You might have not ever met your father, but you always have a father. Um, and here, John is inviting you, no matter what your family life has been like, to find a new way of being in this God who pursues us by taking on flesh, who's honest about sin and dealing with it, who lives in light, who lives in truth, and he's saying there's a new way of life, of family life, of practicing and of habits that you're invited into. You can imitate a new father. Um, think about this. If you've read Brene Brown's work, you know that one of the things he talks about all the time is shame and how shame actually uh, produces hiding. And uh, that's why she encourages vulnerability so often and telling the truth. Um, and she says that the, the answer to shame, of course, is love. A love that is actually embracing the vulnerable, welcoming openness, welcoming truth-telling. So listen again how the Father is spoken of in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him 
in shame at his coming. It says, abide in the Lord. Abide in the Lord. And as you do so, you're actually going to have the freedom to live and to be without shame. You'll receive the kind of love that the Father has given to us. A love that doesn't invite lying, that never invites death, that never invites covering up. He never abandons us. He never cuts us off. He always brings us in and he always cares for us perfectly. And the big lesson here also is that you are always going to imitate your father. He's saying there's a new invitation to you to imitate somebody who loves perfectly, who runs after you intensely, who forgives ultimately. The effect of all this is that we become like him. We start to look like him. We start to talk like him. We start to pursue the things he pursues. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and saying, would that you have sought the things that promote peace? And that's what Jesus does. He comes as the Prince of Peace. We start to become like our Lord. We start to practice righteousness. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We start being people that live in the light. Stop pushing out the light or pushing out the darkness. We start being honest with our sin. So our passage, I think, has a real simple question, but it's actually like incredibly profound. Whose child are you? What habits do you have? What practices have you put on? What family life are you living into? And there's a great invitation in the Christian faith to find your life in abiding with the Father. Abiding with the Father because of the work of Jesus. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Which is to say, I want you all to hear this. You are not bound by your earthly family story. You aren't. You are not bound by the practices that you learned as a child. You're not. You do not have to keep hiding. You can be people of the light. You can find real change. You're not bound to live out of the worst things that happened to you or the worst things that were said to you. God really does offer you a new life in the family of God. Some of you, I know this because I've spoken with some of you. Some of you have become interested in uh, the idea of neuroplasticity, which is sort of a newer kind of thing. In the last hundred years, actually, it kind of does go back a while, but even more recently, much more recently, people have learned that your, your brain really can be rewired, which is to say you really actually can change substantially and significantly. Of course, there's all different, different kinds of therapy that goes into much of that work. But the bottom line is that you can change and you can grow. You can actually move from children of darkness to children of light. From finding your, your life 
in the practices of the devil to your life and the practices of your heavenly father. You really can change and grow. And God invites you into this. He says, find your life in my family and put on righteousness and peace and joy and honesty and light and all these things he's been talking about through this little epistle. You really can find life in a new father. I've read you this story, but it's also been many years and it's a deeply profound story and it's actually deeply sad in a way. Um, But I want to read you a story. It's by Russell Moore wrote this in Christianity Today. Some of you have read some of his work. Um, But let me read it to you actually as he wrote it. He says, the creepiest sound I ever heard was nothing at all. My wife, Maria, and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, or for love. No one ever responded to these children, and so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boys' room. Little Sergei, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of the crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning back to get them for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my head, or hairs on my arms, stood up as I heard the yell. 
I was struck maybe for the first time by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament. Ones I'd memorized on in vacation Bible school. And I was surprised how little I had gotten them until now. Now what I want you to hear in that are these boys who are literally dying. They're not living into who they've been made to be, not one bit. Their voices have been stifled. They have not been loved. They've not been cared for. And in the presence of Russell Moore and his wife, daily coming to them and speaking to them and holding them and reading to them, stuff they don't even quite understand. These children are changed. And what do they do? They actually start to imitate what they've been given. Right? I mean, that imitation is just a yell for help. But they start to become like their new parents. Friends, this is the invitation of the Christian message. A a new life. New practices. A father who loves you absolutely perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. This is the invitation that God has for you. New life in Christ. New way of being. Putting off the old. Putting on the new. And life. Life abundantly. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you that that we can see what kind of love you have for us, that we are your children. God, just as John wrote this to these churches long ago, I pray that we would see these words, hear these words, and think, of course I want to practice righteousness. Of course I want to imitate my Father in heaven. And not imitate somebody who's lying and destructive and brings death and silence and darkness into the world. God, I pray that we would be like our Lord, that we would imitate Jesus, for in him is life, life abundantly. Where he is, there is peace. God, would you make us like yourself? Would you be at work in us? Would we put off the old way of being? Would we put on habits of faithfulness to you? Would we long to be with you, to look into your face, to hear from your words, to be shaped, to be like you, Lord? God, I pray that we would see you as lovely, more desired than gold and silver. that we would pursue you with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength and know that all the other things will be added to us. God, make us children, sons and daughters who are delighted to belong to you. Do this work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. 
please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.